Hello, and welcome to The Grand Thunk, the podcast in which we, Alex Blanchard and Rhiannon Kearns, discuss what we've been reading, watching and listening to. A fairly simple premise. We have transcripts in our link tree in our Instagram bio at The Grand Thunk. You can message us there or email us, thegrandthunk at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. So please subscribe, rate, review and tell all your friends. <laughs> I always expect the music to kick in there, however many times we do that. It's quite disappointing when you're doing it live and it doesn't. <laughs> Maybe I'll just have it on recording just so I can play it to you. Just have it ready. How are you doing? How are you this fine, Good. dark Thursday evening? It's not even evening, it's like half five. <laughs> I know, yeah. And we went for a walk at lunchtime and watched the sunset, you know. At lunchtime. <laughs> <laughs> it does feel so dire, doesn't it? I feel like winter's finally kicked in this week. Yeah, fully. Well, it's been quite mild, hasn't it? We're back with the mm. weather. Um, but I know <laughs> I am finding it like we have to walk the dog really early. And if you're working yeah. from home, that's fine because you just take him out for a second walk at like three. And it's quite a nice way yeah. to break up the afternoon when you usually get all like sluggish. If we're not working from home, you come back and I'm like, oh God, do you want to go for a walk, dog? No. Do I want to go for a walk? No. We've got a little mm. flashing light now for his collar so that, you know, we don't Have lose you? him. Which feels very jazzy. But <laughs> it's just quite depressing going for a walk in the dark. Yeah. Oh, I can talk myself into feeling terrified that like a monster is around the corner at any given second. My overactive imagination does not do well mm. when I'm like walking the dog in a dark field. <laughs> Maybe we need to reframe it as something like really romantic and kind of, you know, you're looking out for fireflies and you're on the search for some sort of nighttime mystery. I think we maybe need to make night more exciting. Yeah, I'm just stomping around in the mud like, oh, this is horrible. But anyway, how's your week been? What have you been up to? I spent the first part of the week on a writer's retreat, which was very fun. Ooh. That's very on trend for the podcast. Tell it me more. It is very on trend. It's about the structures of writing, how to write a novel, different voices, trying different dialogues and different structures. And it's a really fascinating week. I actually got no writing done, which I was quite surprised by. Mm. But it was very informative and I'm sure will influence my own writing greatly. How was your week? Oh, I'm afraid I've got more questions on the retreat first. I'm okay, sorry. Okay, yeah, I'm going to go um, for it. When you say a retreat, <laughs> were you all yeah. like sleeping over like a campsite were you living there was it residential well I was being a bit of a nepo baby and stuck myself in through the back door <laughs> by helping with washing up and things is a dear friend of mine Jason Goodwin and so I was offering my services in return for being able to listen to the retreat but everyone else oh, was nice. staying over in Jason's beautiful house Rushe Instagram at by hills and the sea i believe mm. he had the authors greg moss and jeremy seal down who were teaching alongside jason goodwin and so yeah it's really quite a wide repertoire of brilliant minds to pull from to mm. supplement this writing retreat i just had visions and i was really hoping it was going to be like that episode of fleabag when they go to that silent retreat and oh, then exactly. she meets um, yes Hugh Dennis's character who's on like that anger management for men course next door that's just what I had <laughs> visions of basically yeah no that's such a brilliant such a brilliant episode it's so funny the contrast of those two mediums happening at the same time but yeah very similar B 
beautiful house in the middle of the countryside, a 15 minute walk from the sea, wonderfully decorated house. And there was a, a wood fire and everyone would sit on sofas and discuss their work and Virginia Woolf. It was incredibly romantic. Jason cooked the most amazing meals. But yeah, there was an element of retreat vibes to it. <laughs> like it. Um, whilst we're randomly on Fleabag, do you know yeah. a really crazy connection I made this week? It might not be fascinating to anyone else, but I personally am fascinated mm. by this. Phoebe Waller-Bridge is romantically with Martin McDonough. Did you know this? Who is... So he is a playwright and a film writer and just writer-director. So he's recently written and directed that new film with Brendan Gleeson and oh, your man yes. Colin Farrell. Colin Farrell? Connor Farrell. I get mixed up with rugby players. Connor Murray, <laughs> Colin Farrell. Wait, what's his name? Is it Colin Farrell, the guy in In Bruges? Yeah, Colin. Is he Colin or Connor? I don't know. Colin. Colin. Him. <laughs> anyway, him. They're in this new film called Ballad. The like the Ballad of something. The Banshees something. of Insherin. Yes. The Banshees of Inisherin. I might be saying that wrong. Anyway, Martin McDonough <laughs> wrote and directed that. But he's done loads of plays. That's how I knew him. He wrote Hangmen, which was really a brilliant play on the West End. Well, I think it started at the uh -huh. Royal Court, then it went to the West End, then it went to Broadway. He wrote The Pillow Man. What else has he written? The Lieutenant of Inishmore. He's written loads of really cool plays and I'm sure mm. he's done more TV as well before he jumped into this film. It's one of those people that I feel like I should know. Anyway, he is with Phoebe Waller-Bridge and I just think that is a very successful household. <laughs> like they, they're writing together, like both of them independently and then just imagine getting a Christmas card from them. Whew. <laughs> Be extremely well-written. Oh, I've just remembered the other really famous thing Martin McDonough does. That I was like, there's something massive I've missed. Um, he wrote and directed Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri with Francis <gasps> oh McDormand who won the Oscar. Yeah, I knew there was something oh massive that I forgot. Him. So he... And oh, wow. Yeah, he is like huge. And obviously she is huge. And I just think, mm. damn, that is... Damn. That's a cool partnership. That film is, is extraordinary, oh, isn't it? I love it. I think I watched it twice in quite quick succession when it first came out yeah. and then hadn't seen it in ages and then watched it again maybe like a year or so ago and I'm about ready to watch mm. it again. It kind of does like cry you dry, doesn't it? You need, it needs to yeah. be watched when you're feeling not particularly fragile and at mm. long intervals. It's heartbreaking. The combination of... Sam Rockwell and is it Francis McDermott? Yeah, so Dormand. good. Oh my gosh, Dormand, she's sorry. just <laughs> staggering. McDermott. McDermott. <laughs> she's amazing. I just oh, yeah. adore her work. Yeah. Anyway, this was all because of the writers' retreat and Fleabag <laughs> and me imagining you being like, yeah, Phoebe Waller Bridge and Hugh Dennis. But I'm glad you had a good time on the retreat. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> and I love that, that you got through by washing up. I mean, I don't know. It's such a dad joke, but like of the classic you when you're out for dinner and they're like oh you're not paying well you have to go and do the washing up like I love that that's actually a legit way that you were like well I'll do the washing up and just tag along it's great I was um very struck by the line in is it tick tick boom yeah the musical where he's singing and he says something like I'm no longer the ingenue when he turns 30 and I was thinking about the fact that certainly where I am at the moment people seem to give me lots of helping hands I think because I'm still young <laughs> and then and there's going to become a point where I'm suddenly not going to be able to sort of <laughs> yeah. do that sort of I don't know what to call it that thing where people do something very kind and very generous to help because you get starting out and all of that struggling <laughs> yeah I think I was talking to one of my friends about that 
and the classic like emerging artist and like there's so mm. much great not there's not so much there's some great support for like emerging mm. artists and you know artists under 25 and recent graduates mm. and all of this and I'm like definitely well out the other side of that now and it's not that I didn't need the help then but I didn't know enough about what I wanted to do to really take advantage of those mm. sort of schemes and things and I'm sure loads of people yeah. do to much better effect than I did but I almost need it now I need like a struggling end of 20s artist <laughs> support system not an emerging artist when I'm like 22 mm. and just randomly doing every student film that gets sent my way and working every hour in between it's it's more like this stage that I'm like oh yeah it'd be good to have some kind of like mentor system or all the stuff mm. that's offered early kind of yeah. need that now maybe I should set that up like a uh, about to turn 30 and still still <laughs> an emerging artist <laughs> Scheme. yeah yeah that's what's needed I suppose the Yes, yeah, sorry, we do digress. But I suppose the thing is as well that most people still don't know what they're doing, even if they're older and successful. I think everyone's still kind of going, I don't know quite what I'm, what my plan is and what I should be doing. And oh God, I don't know how to work TikTok and I don't know how to use that to my advantage to market my thing. And there's always a, a lot of question marks, I think, for people that are doing this kind of creative entrepreneurial type thing. So I, I wonder if you just sort of always need mentorships yeah. somehow <laughs> throughout your life even if I imagine it'd be probably quite an interesting thing where I wonder whether quite a lot of people aged like 60 or something then need regressive they need young mentors to help them use things like social media mm. yeah that's so true <laughs> Pair them up. Yeah, exactly. That's a really good idea. I will give you not only washing up, but also <laughs> some Instagram knowledge <laughs> in return for advice. Yeah, that is actually, yeah, it's a nice, good, good format. <laughs> we have much digressed. <laughs> what have you been doing this week? Have you had a good week? Oh, yeah. What have I been doing? Oh, thanks. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, no, that sounded really sarcastic. I was just genuinely like, oh, yeah, oh, thanks. 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 Yeah, what's oh. me? I've had a fairly normal <laughs> week so far. Oh, on the weekend, I went to meet two of our best friends, little baby, and it was amazing. That was, that's the highlight oh. of my week. It was so special and so wonderful and... I just haven't been able to stop thinking about him or them ever since. And Sam and mm. I were both saying we were kind of there long enough that it, I mean, probably too long. On the way, I was like, Sam, don't let me be those guests that don't leave when, you know, someone's got a baby and needs every hour of sleep. And I'm just there like, <laughs> I'm still here. Oh. And I 100% was that person. So really sorry about that. Because <laughs> we were there long enough that it wasn't just like saying hello, having a little like hold of the baby each, and a little cuddle and then mm. kind of moving on and doing something else. We were just sort of existing on the sofa with them all afternoon. And when I came home and sat on the so far, I was like, oh, really feels like I should have a little baby on my chest. Like, oh, it, it, it was just kind of a really tiny, tiny glimpse into their routine, even though it wasn't routine because it was different because we were there. But just a tiny mm. glimpse into their world, I guess. And I, I miss it already. It was amazing. They're doing wonderfully. He's incredible. And it was so lovely. So that's kind of fueled me up with love and kept me going oh, all week. Oh, yeah. that was so lovely. It was really nice. That was so wonderful. Go on then, tell me a bit about what you've been reading, watching or listening to, Rhiannon. Oh, so I watched something absolutely marvellous last week mm. and I didn't have time to fit it into our chat, so you get it today. I watched the Judy Dench interview episode with Louis Theroux. I actually don't know what this oh. series is titled. It's just basically Louis Theroux interviewing really cool people. Maybe it's called Louis Theroux interviews. I don't know. <laughs> Was that the one he did in lockdown? No, it's really recent. It's just coming out now. 
Oh, okay. I don't know. So he's, it's like, it's on BBC iPlayer or BBC One. Mm-hmm. I think Judy Dench was the first one or maybe an early one. That's the one I've watched. Mm-hmm. And then he's also done one with Stormzy and I think Young Blood and Bear Grylls. I remember being trailered when I was watching the Judy Dench one. They're probably out by now. Mm-hmm. But it's like, a, yeah, it's a series that he's he's releasing at the moment. Oh, I just, I didn't think I could love Judy Dench more. What a woman. Honestly, it was such a heartwarming and tender and beautiful watch. It was just real genuine warmth from mm. from her and from Louis Theroux. And I, I mean, I win absolutely no prizes for originality in saying this, but Louis Theroux really is just such a masterful interviewer. Like he is so good at what he does. And mm. he has a really, really, really great way with guests in allowing the conversation to flow and still probing and extracting things, but it never feels forced and you never feel like there's any kind of discomfort from the guest or effort from him. And he's just funny and kind and a real, yeah, total master at his craft. Um, as of course is Judy Dench and she absolutely hates being kind of complimented and told that she's like a national treasure and, and <laughs> she just detests it all. But, you know, it was really wonderful to hear her bits. You couldn't do it all, but bits of her life through his questions and sort of she was in her home and her garden and, you know, taking taking someone through that those parts of your home kind of mm. take someone through parts of yourself doesn't it? it it's a really nice way to slowly open that draw back that curtain and she spoke really beautifully of her late husband it was really really moving he was an actor as well michael williams she has this gorgeous thing where she's named trees in her really large garden after people in her life that have passed away and it's not Aww. like she's kind of growing them from saplings I don't think because they're enormous already and these are some people who have passed away quite recently but I just you know there's actual little kind of ropes tied around them with names wooden carved or wooden written on little wooden plaques hanging off mm. the trees and it's just so moving I just thought you know lots yeah. of people do that trees are kind of dedicated to someone or planted as a memory but just to walk around her own obviously she's got you know kind of a humongous garden and a gorgeous big house Mm. but in her own sort of space to walk around the trees and she just spoke very simply about how much pleasure and comfort she gets from trees and really admires the beauty of trees and so decided vaguely think she said it was quite recently that she did that so there was you know just as the camera panned around you could see there was a tree that had alan rickman's name on it and oh. Helen McCrory and just wonderful people that she's worked with and knows and loves and I probably people mm. that she admires and maybe didn't work with or know that are on the trees and then there's one for her husband it just says Mike and it's like the biggest tree in the middle and it was just really and she goes and walks down there and I guess feels his presence it was just really really beautiful and the way she spoke about their kind of life together and how they work together as actors was really special and touching. So it's a really great watch if you're kind of any way interested in Judy Dench. It's a total joy to behold. So yeah, I really recommend that on BBC iPlayer. Oh, that sounds so lovely. And I think mm. that's so that's such a wonderful physical manifestation of absence or loss and grief to have a tree. I feel like because it's such a big and as you said trees exude so much presence anyway, but then to have to project I guess whoever it is that you've lost onto the tree is actually a really wonderful way of doing it because you can still kind of talk to and hug and touch and be around the tree and I think and I imagine that's a really clear way to delineate your grief Mm. yeah that sounds really charming it was totally yeah and it was 
it wasn't just about those more tender parts. There was loads of you know mm. comedy and funny stories from her past and memories and Louis kind of teasing a bit and and her reaction to that. And yeah, it was it was a really a fun watch. There's a nice section about her grandson who came to live with her in lockdown. I didn't know this, but he was like a TikTok person or does a lot on Instagram. I don't know. Oh God, it sounds so mm-hmm. ancient when I say that. Don't I? <laughs> oh, so bad. <laughs> and yeah, so they did. He did all these like TikTok dances and things with her and it went like viral and she'd be kind of mm. like oh how many people have seen that and he'd be like oh you know like a million <laughs> and so in the episode they do a tiktok dance yeah louis through and um, judy dench and her daughter and grandson and it was great oh, amazing she's just cracking actually there's an interesting section in there i will move on in a second about mm. he does ask her about working with harvey weinstein oh interesting and it's quite oh, i don't know how to describe it i don't want to say it wasn't uncomfortable it wasn't mm. weird well, I suppose it was. It, just, it, it was a bit odd for someone you love and admire as much as I do, Judy Dench. She spoke very clearly about understanding the effect he has had on other people. Mm. But she was also very clear in that she never experienced that and only ever saw positivity and nice interactions with him. And she didn't mm. try and say, you know, in any way, oh, therefore, I don't believe anyone else. You know, she wholeheartedly mm-hmm. said, I understand that lots and lots of people didn't experience the same person I did and Mm. that is you know a complete tragedy but it was weird I guess in a way I don't know what she could have done differently to make it not feel weird I don't think anything I think Mm. she was just completely honest and straightforward and in no way flowering around a situation that's like cruel and horrible but that Mm. she has no personal connection with and that her actual personal connection is a complete complete antithesis to that you know it Mm. was so poles apart that she was acknowledging the atrocities removing any question of that from her interactions and just kind of laying Mm. it laying it out and it was interesting you know it was it was well handled by Louis and and I guess surprising because you you, I, I guess you just expect nowadays and now he's been convicted in things like you only should hear like absolute kind of hate and Mm. vitriol about him and actually when you hear someone just saying you know I know that's to be true but I also had this experience it's kind of just a bit jarring I suppose but I Mm. guess that's also really impressive of her character to be able to be completely kind of confront how she feels about him or felt you know maybe it's past tense maybe she doesn't have any thoughts about it now I don't know I just it struck me as interesting and a bit it sat a bit weirdly with me, I suppose, the way it was, mm. the way I heard it. But not that's not said with any judgment of her, because I, I, like I said, I don't know what she could have done differently to make it not feel like that. I guess it's just a weird thing. Yes, I suppose it's the difference between, it sounds like she erred slightly too much on the, I don't, well, no, again, you're right. You just don't really want to hear anything good about someone that you know has done such awful things. You don't yeah. want to hear redeeming quality, do you? But the world isn't that black and white. Exactly. And I, you know, not to stray into really contentious territory, <laughs> but the whole Matt Hancock and I'm a celebrity thing is, is similar. And you can see the people in the camp struggling uh-huh. with the fact that they can have a laugh with him and that they can mm. speak to him and find some common ground occasionally and that he is winning them food and that he can be nice. And then they remember everything else. And I, you can see that really, mm. that conflict yeah. And you almost, you don't want it, do you? You want to villainize the people whose actions you don't like. You want them to be horrible. And yeah. it's hard when they're human and you're like, oh God, this yeah. is It's much horrible. easier when someone's removed from you and is a, just a distant sort of analogy almost yeah. for a person where you can go, oh yes, you know, the devil, bad, great, 
Yeah. We know that. Yeah. And then you get Paradise Lost coming along being like, no, maybe the devil's not so bad. And you're like, no. <laughs> yeah. So it's a, it's a funny one. But anyway, all in all, the Judy Dench Louis Through episode was marvellous. And I do want to watch like the Stormzy one and the Bear Grylls one because it'd yeah. be great to see. Uh, yeah. And anyone else he's got coming up. Well, speaking of the, the Weinsteins, um, <laughs> great segue from me. I recently watched The Brothers Grimm, which I think was produced by them, oh. directed by Terry Gillingham of Monty Python fame, mm-hmm. and then starring Heath Ledger, Matt Damon, and Lena Headey. Oh. Have you seen it? No. It was a 2005 film. And it's so good. (laughs) It's so bad, but so good. So it's telling the stories of the Brothers Grimm, who were, for anyone that doesn't know, they wrote a lot of the massive fairy tales that become, you know, household staples. And they collected them by traveling around the country and gathering these stories in a sort of oral, from the oral tradition. And in this retelling, they're con artists and they're traveling around French-occupied Germany and following the stories and then sort of recreating the stories with their conning ways with props and harnesses and all sorts of contraptions in order to convince the village that they have indeed seen the witch and then fought it off and for that they are rewarded lots of money the characters are will who's a kind of charismatic showman brother and then jake who is much more sort of nerdy and fascinated by the fairy tales and he's the one who's writing all the fairy tales down and then they then get captured by the french general who's played by sir jonathan price and he has the most ludicrous french accent it's so funny and he calls them the brothers graham sends them to a town where his rule is being threatened by what they think is a sort of another set of con artists pretending acting out some sort of fairy tale and so they go to investigate and it turns out that it's a real fairy tale complete with missing children and moving trees and a mysterious tower and so they have to win the day and fight off the fairy tale and it's so much fun it's ridiculous and despite all of that really sensitively and kind of beautifully told and I just really enjoyed it. <laughs> that sounds so good. Yeah. Is Jonathan Price the guy that's now in The Crown playing Philip? Was he in Game of Thrones? Is that the right actor? He was in Game of Thrones. He did... Um, was he, was he the, the high priest? S- high Sparrow. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the Sparrow. Yes, and he's Shame. now... Yeah, he's now Philip in The Crown. I haven't watched okay. any of The Crown yet, but I just... Well, I was no. trying to remember if I was picturing the right guy. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that sounds good. Very fun film. I haven't seen anything, <laughs> like, not new in ages. Like, I haven't watched a film that's not just mm. new. Oh, God, I'm really... I love all the films from, like, 95 to 2010 are just so iconic in their own strange, weird ways. I think there's something about modern film that's almost too sharp and too sort of precise and there's something really fun about really bad cg or kind of strange effects or i don't know there's something about films that just are are less polished than they are 
today that just makes them incredibly fun to watch. Mm. Okay, I've got a very long tangent to take us on because... Ooh, off we go. Yeah, here we go. Boop, boop. Buckle up. <laughs> I went to the Bridport Literary Festival and I'm going to talk to you about another book next week because I, I haven't finished reading it yet. But I also attended the talk of Nicholas Jubber, who's written a book called The Fairy Tellers. And this is about the original tellers of many of the fairy tales, which again, are huge household staples. And then it also tells the stories of other fairy tales, which are just like fantastic and their origins of who told those stories and a lot of these fairy tales the tellers have faded into obscurity either because they are part of that oral tradition where they've told their stories to someone with more connections or who's writing it down or because things like they were women or they weren't part of the aristocracy and so it's a really interesting book about these original fairy tellers and it's wonderfully researched and such an interesting reflection on the societies in which these storytellers lived and as well mm. as the storytellers themselves and then their more famous contemporaries who might have been the ones to take on their stories. And there's two, <laughs> there's two particular stories I want to tell you about. So the first is about this guy, Jean-Baptiste Basile, who's an Italian storyteller from the late 1500s, I think, who brought us in a very early version of Cinderella and Rapunzel. And he told this story which I'm going to paraphrase because I can't find anything about it online that isn't behind a paywall about a man and his cricket like a little um the bug cricket a cockroach and a mouse so okay. <laughs> the setup is something like there's a princess's hand has been offered in marriage there's some obstacle which has to be overcome in order to get her hand in marriage and this man and his cricket cockroach and mouse succeed in winning her hand in marriage but in order to fully go through with the marriage to consummate the marriage he must he has three nights with which he needs to have sex with the princess right of course every night the young man who's a man he's a provincial man of lowly origins and the king doesn't want him to marry his lovely princess and so he is drugged at the feast every night. So he sleeps through every opportunity he could have to consummate his marriage and gets thrown into a pit with some lions. The princess <laughs> is then married to a new man who's very wealthy and we hate him. The, <laughs> the original our provincial young man uses his <laughs> cockroach and cricket and mouse to upset the marriage bed. What he does is he sends the cockroach up the bum of the man who's <gasps> now married to the princess. And so he, he releases <laughs> the contents of his bum slash colon <gasps> all over the marriage bed. Dreadful. Oh, absolutely Lord. dreadful. They do not consummate their marriage this night. I'm not surprised. <laughs> the next night comes, the man has wrapped himself up. He's really trying to contain everything that's down there he's wrapped himself round with with um, wrapped his bum up he's wrapped his bum up nice. presumably with like a little space so that you know his goods are out <laughs> so that he can consummate the marriage <laughs> i'm just you that know just really really sexy <laughs> so he's wearing a nappy <laughs> with his bits out and so the mouse it's the mouse's turn to um do some of the work so he bites through the the nappy and sends the cockroach up to do his good work <gasps> and destroy no. the marriage bed yet again it's so weird <laughs> it's such a weird story and he told it to an audience of like 
80 people who were all like fairly senior and it was just the most amazing thing to watch because he told it with such sort of vigor um anyway i'm getting distracted anyway so the third night comes the rich man is desperate to consummate the marriage so that he can marry his princess so he's stuck a cork up his bum so that nothing can come out <laughs> and so and so the cricket goes up to the man and plays his little legs underneath his nose the man lets out a humongous sneeze the cork pops out the cockroach heads up does his good work and the marriage is ruined once and for all i, I love that you're calling it the, his good work you know, the cockroach does his good work <laughs> and then the young man gets released from his cell with the lions and gets to marry the princess after all. So I just thought that was a fantastic tale to have told at this wonderful literary event. And stunning. Oh, so good. And I was reading some more about him in his book, and his sister, his sister, who's rather romantically named Artemisia Gentilishi. I've said that wrong. I can guarantee it, was the artist who painted Judith and Holofernes. If you know, do you know the painting? No. It's this very beautifully, imagine a very dark Caravaggio and there's a man lying on the bed wrapped in clothing and (laughs) Judith and her maid are holding on to him, pinning him down and Judith is chopping off his head and they both have got quite kind of passive looking faces as this blood's like squirting out of this man with this kind of horrified expression on the bed. It's a really wonderful painting. I would never have connected this, this mad storyteller with the artist who painted that and she helped him with a lot of the female perspective of some of his stories which I thought was really interesting Mm. and gave them a sort of slightly more feminist perspective and so I then looked her up in the story of art without men which I was telling you about last time oh yeah by Katie Hessel and read a very interesting section about her so she was she was 17 when she painted this amazing painting of Susanna and the elders which is this young woman who's washing herself fairly unclothed there are some lechy men sort of creeping over behind her and again that's painted from this really feminist perspective of the young woman who's got these men are sort of preying on it's a really um, emotive painting so she's 17 when she painted this masterpiece and then she was 19 when she painted Judith slaying Holofernes and there was then this tale that Katie Hessel told about she was she was raped by her father's friend who I think was mentoring her slightly. Her and her father then took him to court in order to so that he would get judgment for having raped her. This is in the 1600s, bear in mind. Throughout the court case, it was actually really horrific. They tortured her with screws on her hands <gasps> to check that she was like telling the truth. And she said, and had to say, è vero, è vero, è vero. It's true to assert her truth. Anyway, I just felt like that that was a really extraordinary connection to this fairy tale teller of Jean-Baptiste Basile. But the second thing I wanted to tell you, whilst I'm on my giant tangent, was then about the Brothers Grimm again. Mm. So Jacob and Wilhelm, who are the brothers, remember the story I told you earlier about how they collected the mm-hmm. stories from around the villages and it was this sort of thing where they're bottling the stories that of this oral tradition from the lips of herds 
herdsmen and sort of old crones and these stories that were about to get lost. Well, it actually turns out that they were more <laughs> collected from sort of middle class acquaintances and more than 50 of their 86 tales were told by women under the age of 25. Mm-hmm. So in fact, the Brothers Grimm, whose stories we know so well and love, you know, the elves and the shoemaker and, and Hansel and Gretel and all these amazing stories, a lot of them, the majority of them are told by very young women. Uh, you notice I say people under 25 are very young now. <laughs> very, very, very. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have guessed that demographic at that time was a particularly storytelling. No. I mean, I suppose maybe they were having children much younger. So that is probably... Yeah. I was thinking, you know, I, I imagine the storytelling traditions being, I don't know, pilgrimages mm. and people taking long journeys or kind of older people passing on stories. But mm. actually, I suppose you've also got like motherhood and, and telling stories to children and that would have all started a lot younger. So, yeah, that does make sense. I was thinking of like, I don't know, the yeah. millennials of uh, <laughs> that our current millennial or younger Gen Z generation of whatever time period the Brothers Grimm were in, <laughs> being like, what are they doing? Chatting stories, but actually they wouldn't have been living the lives that we are living now. That makes way more sense. Yeah. yeah. I also Ooh, just think that's cool. very interesting that they were... That the, exactly. I think it's, it's fascinating that's the demographic and it seems really unlikely. Mm. But in fact, these stories, which are, you know, the staples of our my childhood certainly are told by women a lot of them and one of them significantly was this woman called Dot Chen Wild who was an apothecary's daughter who later married Wilhelm and she told a lot of those crucial stories so I just yeah have had the most wonderful time going down this little meandering path of researching fairy tales (laughs) and artists that sounds beautifully bonkers (laughs) just like you good (laughs) (laughs) on a very different note Mm. i i've just listened to the most stunning interesting illuminating and really heartfelt podcast Mm. episode that is not particularly recent but i can't help but harp on about it Mm. so i revisited good old fern cotton's happy place having religiously listened to it when it was first coming out Mm. and probably let it sort of slide for a bit not deliberately just you know you forget Mm -hmm. and i've for some reason got I think I saw it on Instagram, someone talking about it, or maybe it was the person himself, who I shall say in a minute, <laughs> uh, Matt Edmondson, the a radio DJ mm-hmm. and TV presenter. I think it was like the anniversary of him sharing his sort of story on this podcast. And so he maybe posted about it again or something. I don't know. I was I was drawn to it from something recent and went back to listen to it. And actually in doing so, scrolled past like so many episodes. I thought, oh, they'd be good. Oh, they'd be good. So yeah, just a reminder to go and dig through the treasure trove that is Happy Place. Mm. Mm. However, I will just say, bloody Alpha and Cotton, she has so many adverts on there. Oh. People are really getting greedy with their podcast adverts these days. I'm like, one or two, fine. Mm. It's like a full, like, 10-minute section in the middle where I'm like, oh, oh, don't give me another deal on HelloFresh. I'm over it. Anyway, sorry, it's just me moaning. You have to make money. <laughs> sure. Crack on. Welcome to our ad-free podcast. <laughs> yeah. We're just bitter. Um, <laughs> anyway, Matt Edmondson is episode on Happy Place. It's actually from December 2021, so it's nearly a year. And it's so brilliant. It's the first time I think, or it's, it, was a, it was the first big interview he kind of gave about this revelation he made fairly late into his public profile and public career. And it's basically after he released a song that he wrote and produced. And 
which kind of took me by surprise because I was like, oh, he's a DJ and presenter. I didn't know he could sing. And he he says he can't. You know, he basically, he explains it obviously perfectly in the episode, but he came to this process because of an experience he had with Radio 1 and getting to see like music being produced and being taken to a recording studio and just being like lit up and kind of electrified by the process. And was like, I've got to learn how to do this. And, and it became a lockdown project, like learning how to produce a song. Mm-hmm. And then he ended up messing around with some chords lyrics kind of poured out of him in this emotional state because of the content and then he got like a singer that he really liked to sing it and yeah produce the track and released it as a song and him releasing the song was the first time he spoke about this really kind of tragic and oh, tragic's the wrong word I always think tragic's a really passive word I don't know this really horrendous kind of thing that happened to him in his his childhood and that's really influenced his life mm. the song in this episode is him talking about his father's suicide oh. and growing up with his dad as an alcoholic which he didn't know at the time mm-hmm. he says he's kind of looks back now you know I think he found out from the suicide note I believe I think he said mm-hmm. his dad spoke about suffering with alcoholism and addiction in his suicide note and now looking back it's like everything sort of fell into place and made a lot more sense mm-hmm. and his dad had these really frequent deep 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 periods of depression I won't try and tell Matt's story because he does such a, a brilliant job of it obviously himself and he tells it with really delicate detail and care and and also brutal honesty and all the less attractive emotions that come when something awful like suicide occurs Mm. like anger and resentment and and how all of that layers and twists grief into a an even more kind of complex and painful beast Mm. to to reckon with it's not just i mean just grief that's a horrible phrase isn't it but like imagine kind of layering it with all of those feelings that you're really maybe trying to resist or escape from and it was a very very long podcast episode which was great because I didn't really want it to, to end because it was just so fascinating and, and heartfelt. And as you, you kind of hardly heard from Fern because as an interviewer, she, she kind of just needed to give him the space. Mm. I think given he's a broadcaster as well, she kind of asked him one question and, and he just spoke for like 20 minutes oh, wow. and kind of telling this story about how he came to write the song. And it's a really fascinating interview Matt then talks about his own mental health and a condition he's been diagnosed with called cyclothymia and he describes cyclothymia as similar to bipolar which is what him and his family think his dad had was Mm. never diagnosed but that's what they think and the differences in his words were kind of that the cyclothymia the kind of bookends of manic episodes and a depressive state are kind of scooched in a bit, I guess, so that the manic ex- episodes aren't as hypermanic as someone with bipolar might have, and the depressive state isn't as deep as the depression as someone with bipolar might suffer with. Mm-hmm. So he talks about how he came to be diagnosed with that and what led him to try and understand it. And he also talks a lot about his creative process and how he's, it becomes really clear early on in the conversation how much he loves to make things, whether it's you know, making a funny set of audio for his radio show or making a board game with his kid or making a, this track and music or just mm. making things, ideas. He's he's kind of obsessed. You can hear the, his, his high level of attention to detail when it comes to bringing an idea that pops into his brain like a light bulb mm. and, and seeing it physically come into like to manifestation. And he also talks a lot about his creative process and, and flow state. I don't know if you've heard that term. Mm-hmm. I think I got used to it after the episode, but it's something I wasn't really... I hadn't really heard much about before. And this state that he can 
access, I guess, or I suppose not access, I suppose I should say that this state that takes over him mm-hmm. in is a better way of describing it when he's in the kind of up state of cyclothymia. And he almost says he has to almost kind of resist leaning into that level of hyper-focus that he used to, he used to just think he was a super productive person. Mm-hmm. And then after understanding more about cyclothymia, realized that that level of insane hyper-focus is the kind of thing that would be really destructive to people around him. You know, mean he wasn't eating, he wasn't sleeping, he wasn't talking or socializing. Mm. He just had this thing and he, it's all he could do. Yeah. And he'd say like, he'd come back to a project that he had started working on when he was in that state. And he'd be like, it was like someone else's work. I had no idea what it was, mm. how it got there. It, it's completely kind of intense is, is not even a strong enough word for it. And he's now learned how to kind of not lean in to that, to the upstate, because obviously on the flip side, it means that the depressive episodes are often there as well that might follow or mm. it, it, by not leaning into the, the kind of positive sides of it that he looked at as originally as a positive, it means he can better control how he acts in the depressive states. Mm. Anyway, it was just, I've never ever heard of this condition or even thought about bipolar in that, in that sense of how it links in with the creative flow and how some people could harness it, but also it harnesses them. And I just think the way he spoke about it was, was all about balance mm. and stability and and control and knowing more about his past from the way he spoke about it kind of it all really made so much sense but you know that's taken him years of pain and torment and burying it and not talking about it and then even more years of therapy to to understand and unpack it all and it was just yeah it's so much empathy the way he spoke about his childhood and and shame and blame and parenthood and just it was really really amazing so i just think it's whether you're interested in his work or not, just to hear more about the things that he's gone through and and how he expresses it. Mm. It's just a fascinating listen and really emotional, but just, yeah, what an impressive guy. Really, really loved it. That sounds like such a profound episode. And I imagine Mm. there's something so wonderful about people who have honed their ability to speak or eat things and to hear a story like that from the mouth of someone who is good at telling their well not necessarily their story but telling stories must be Mm. really amazing as well someone who can communicate really clearly with words wow yeah and actually he spoke about how for so long he thought what's the point because even if it brings me you know the help that he now knows it has brought him because he has spoken about it Mm. when he wasn't wanting to talk about it he was thinking you know why would I pay someone like a therapist to talk about the thing I've been trying to bury my whole mm, life. Yeah. I've gotten by, like I'm I'm relatively happy. I get by in my life. Mm-hmm. I've got a, a happy home, a wife, kids, job. Why scratch that itch? Why pull up a rug and discover mm. all those demons that are definitely there? And I'm sure I could be happier with if I dealt with them, but I'm pretty happy as it is. Let's not bother. Mm. And also the effect it has on everyone else. And and he said he felt a certain amount of guilt, even though he he possibly doesn't like or didn't like his his dad he obviously loved him because he was his dad Mm. and he said talking about it all without his dad being able to be here to maybe defend or explain himself Mm. he wrangled with a lot of guilt about that and and also you know he obviously spoke to his mum and his siblings maybe just one sibling I can't remember before because Mm. it's bringing a lot of stuff out into the open and, and he worried about the effect it would have on, you know, his dad's previous colleagues and friends that maybe just thought, you know, that was a man who suffered with depression and committed suicide and isn't that so awful? And, mm. you know, he's then having to shine a light on a really different and, and 
difficult and tormented side mm. of their relationship and him as a person and what that does to everyone else. And I just can't even comprehend the complexity of deciding how to talk about yeah. that sort of thing. And he does it with real grace and strength. And it's, yeah, a real brilliant, brilliant listen. Wow. That's... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I have got something really fun to end on. Go on. <laughs> Sorry, I realised that was a really heavy thing to end on. No. Um, I heard something hilarious mm-hmm. on the radio. I feel like lots of people have heard this as well. It was on BBC Radio 2. It's quite a big station. But I have to play it. So I challenge you to listen to this and not laugh. So this is the comedy genius of Sarah Cox on BBC Radio 2. So please enjoy this perfect mashup of All Saints and Jeremy Vine. The combination we never knew we needed. A few questions that I need to know. Do you love walking around barefoot? (laughs) What reaction did you get when you told people you were getting a chainsaw? (laughs) Have you been driven to distraction by somebody else's bad fridge behaviour? What exactly is a raindrop? (laughs) When it comes to an all-you-can-eat buffet, how much is too much? (laughs) What is it like living next door to a hot, frothing, illuminated bath? What is the most pointless road sign where you live? Is it wrong to steal leaves? Why are sheepdogs so valuable? Are you suffering from a slug invasion? Are you living in a rubbish dumping hotspot and are you furious? Does the place where you live have an unusual smell? Do call 08000 288 291. All the answers to my questions I have to find. I literally adore it so much. I love Sarah Cox. I don't love Jeremy Vine that much, but he is he does provide wonderful opportunities for comedy and I just adore questions we didn't know we needed answered. (laughs) And are you furious about it? And are you furious? (laughs) So good. There we go. That's end on a little really lovely. That is a jolly. (laughs) Thank you, Rhiannon. Oh, you're so oh, welcome. What a great chat. What a great chat. Don't forget to join us on our book tour. <laughs> Woo! I can't wait. I'm honestly so excited. Yeah. Details on our Instagram. And again, when we say ah, oh, just to, to oh, yes. echo, still not me that's still written the book. Still not Rhiannon's book. Still not me. <laughs> I will be there with bells on. Very excited <laughs> in support mode of Alex and Alex. But yeah, thank you so much for listening. Thank and you. we will chat to you again next week. Talk soon. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.